Now, just this week, one of you in this congregation shared something that's going around Facebook right now as well. It's a post called, 11 times Jesus took demons seriously and why you should too. And in the post, it it talks about a uh, trend among youth in the country with, with Ouija boards calling out Charlie, Charlie in order to invoke a particular demon. And the author of this article going around Facebook lists 11 passages in Scripture where Jesus took them very seriously. The temptation in the desert, the demon in the synagogue, the possessed pigs. And and the passage that we're going to look at today was in there as well. The author said, look, Jesus saw the great torment that came from demonic activity. He didn't play games with demons. He rebuked them and drove them out. Demons in the occult are not fun. They're dangerous. But the Gospels also reveal that Jesus is stronger. Demons flee at his very name. He closes, rather than invoke Charlie, invoke the holy name of Jesus. All that to say, whether it's TV or Facebook, we have multiple entry points into a conversation about a very real enemy, Satan and his demons. Ephesians 6 says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And there are times where Satan and his demons hit us with a frontal attack like that, with the Ouija boards and the occult and things like that. But there are other times, I want to tell you, where he comes like a scam artist. Erwin Lutzer wrote a book called The Serpent of Paradise, and And he wrote down some basic rules that scam operators follow that Satan often follows as well. Think about these as you think about his craftiness. Number one rule for a scam operator. Never lose sight of your long-term goal, the enslavement of your prospects. Number two, think of ways to help your client develop confidence in you. Do nothing to arouse fear or suspicion. Number three rule for scam operators, use bait that will appeal to your customer, but be sure to keep the hook skillfully hidden. Number four, make promises that prove the personal benefits of your product. Then keep as many promises as possible. See the craftiness. Number five, have as many lures as there are interests. There is no limit to the number of doors that can lead to the final goal of control and entrapment. You see the sneakiness. Liz Dudek, are you here this morning? This happened to you on Craigslist, didn't it? She had a tablet for sale on Craigslist and someone offered to pay her much more than she was asking. Said, we'll send you a cashier's check. That was a huge number, wasn't it? $1,900 for a little tablet. So Liz takes the check down to the bank. And the bank says, this isn't real, this is a scam. And the guy kept contacting her and saying, hey, how come you're not calling me back? Well, thankfully, he left her alone eventually. It was a scam, right? He was trying to, to win one over on you. The enemy often works the same way. He makes something look a whole lot better than it is and takes it out from under your feet. Trip Lee, Christian artist, said this about the war. This is war like you ain't seen. This winter's long, it's cold and mean. When life and death go to battle, ain't no telling what'll happen. It's war tonight. It's death and life. And that's the picture of spiritual warfare in this world. That's what we're going to see in our passage 
in Luke chapter 11 today. We're going to see the peak of rejection of Jesus Christ. How many of you guys know he went through seasons like this as far as his popularity? Or some seasons, he's feeding the crowd bread and stuff, and, and his popularity's up here. Then he says a hard statement, and it starts to wane. And here we get the climax of his opposition. And we're going to talk about spiritual opposition and how we can live in light of it. Chapter 11, if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to verse 14. It says, Jesus was driving out a demon that was mute. When the demon left, the man who had been mute spoke, and the crowd was amazed. This is one of many instances where Jesus comes upon someone where Satan and his demons have had their way in his life. Can you imagine not being able to speak? It says the demon was mute and made the man he, he possessed mute. I want to look at something there. It's interesting. It says the demon himself was mute. Therefore, the man that he possessed was mute as well. We take, tend to take on the characteristics of whatever it is that controls us. Did you know that? He had just finished talking last week about the gift of the Holy Spirit that the Father gives. He loves to give that gift to those who ask. So you put them side by side and you say, wow, if I'm controlled by the Holy Spirit... My life will be holy. If I'm controlled by something else, my, my life will reflect what that is. For this man, it was a mute demon. Leads me to ask the question, what am I controlled by this morning when I look at how I act? Is it the world? Is it the flesh? Is it the devil? Or is it the Holy Spirit? What am I controlled by? Jesus overcomes the power of the enemy in this man's life. Can you imagine his joy? How many of you love to talk? A few of you that are honest. This man, oh. Have you seen those videos recently of the, the deaf people that are able to hear for the first time? The joy on their faces when they first hear their mom's voice. It's, that's the face of this man. He's free now. What's the reaction in the crowd? Verse 15. Some of them said, by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, Jesus is driving out demons. Others tested him by asking for a sign from heaven. We know from the previous verse that some of them were amazed, as they should have been. Wow, look at that power. But some of them jump right and say, you're not doing that by the power of God. You're doing that by the power of Beelzebul. That was another name for Satan. Beelzebul means the lord of the dwelling. Some translations say Beelzebub, Lord of the Flies, which means death and decay. Many believe it came from Beelzebub, which points back to Baal in the Old Testament, which for the Israelites, he was an awful, horrible God. They're all talking about Satan. They're saying, you ain't doing this by the power of God. You're operating in the power of Satan. That's the second group. The third group says, we want to see more before we'll believe. Give us more signs. When we look at the responses to when Jesus does something amazing, and part of me wants to ask, how do we respond when Jesus does something awesome? When he sets someone free? When he does something powerful in our world, in the life of an individual? Do we say, Jesus, you're amazing. I praise you. Do we attribute it to something else? Or do we say, eh, I want to see something more. We can see ourselves in the crowd. How do we respond? Jesus 
is going to respond to their accusation. His first response is, guys, division doesn't work. Verse 17, Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, any kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and a house divided against itself will fall. If Satan is divided against himself, how can his kingdom stand? I say this because you claim that I drive out demons by Beelzebub. What's he saying? He's, guys, let's use some common sense. Why would the head of an army work against his own army? show you what era I grew up in. When I read this, I thought about Bill S. Preston Esquire and Theodore, Theodore Logan from Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. You remember that key moment in the movie where they say, why would we lie to ourselves? <laughs> you have to know the movie to appreciate it. I want to paraphrase and say, why would we fight against ourselves, dude? That's what Jesus is saying. It doesn't make any sense that Satan is going to operate against his own demons. Satan's too smart to be divided. As we talked to Del Taco this week, the guys brought out the idea that we ought to ask that as the body of Christ. Satan knows that for his side. Do we know that? Satan's too smart to be divided against his own guys. What about us? When we look at our lives, am I promoting unity in the body of Christ? By my words and my actions? Or am I bringing division to the cause I say I love? Satan's too smart for that. We surely ought to be too smart for that. Division doesn't work. His second response is basically, how do your guys do it? Verse 19. Now if I drive out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your followers drive them out? So then they will be your judges. There were some Jewish exorcists going around that God had evidently enabled to throw out demons as well. And he's like, hey, if I do it by demons, who do you guys do it by? I could hear my, my grandpa Howard say, what's good for the goose is good for the gander. Your accusation is going to come right back on you guys. Doesn't make sense. Third response, he says, I'm doing this by the power and the finger of God. Verse 20, if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. A couple things I want to point out about that phrase, finger of God. When your good Jewish scholar heard that phrase, their mind raced right back to the Exodus. Okay? Exodus chapter 6, verse 18 and 19. When the magicians in Egypt tried to produce gnats by their secret arts, they could not. Since the gnats were on people and animals everywhere, the magicians said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hard and he would not listen just as the Lord had said. He's saying, you guys are being just like Pharaoh. He saw my power when I sent those plagues on the land and he refused to believe. You guys are doing the very same thing. I also love the picture of the finger of God. When, when God chooses to defeat Satan, Obviously, this is anthropomorphism. God is a spirit who doesn't literally have body parts. But the picture is beautiful. He pictures the, the small finger. I conquer you with my finger. I don't need my arm. I don't need anything else. My finger. I will conquer you. It's, it speaks to the, the power of God. But he goes on to tell a story that paints this picture for those of us who, who love story. When a strong man, fully armed, 
guards his own house, his possessions are safe. But when someone stronger attacks and overpowers him, he takes away the armor in which the man trusted and divides up his plunder. As we wrestle through this passage, it is in some ways a confusing passage. But I believe after looking at it, in this passage, the strong man is Satan. Satan has control over this individual's life in this story. He, ha- he is having his way in this person's life. This, in this case, the, the mute person who is possessed. Satan longs to do that in our lives today. He longs to hold us captive. He longs to keep us in his patterns of sin. And often, Matthew Henry points out, when Satan has us under his control, as long as we agree with what he wants us to do, it seems very peaceful. Seems like everything's A-OK, because you know what? He's got you where he wants you. And we see this in the world, in nations. As long as you're okay with doing whatever the dictator says, your life can be relatively peaceful. But when you get to that point where your desire for freedom starts to outweigh the peace, often it takes revolution and discomfort and war to bring freedom, right? So you see Satan holding this man. That's the picture of him guarding his own house. His possessions are safe. But when someone stronger attacks and overpowers him, he takes away the armor in which the man trusted and divides up his plunder. If Satan's the strong man, who's the stronger man? God, yes. Satan thinks he's got this guy where he wants him. Jesus comes in, sets him free, casts the demon out. He, he does the same thing today. He wants to set people free who are under the power of the devil. He really shows Satan to be overconfident. Satan undermeasured his foe. Luke 4.18, Jesus said, He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free. Matthew 16.18, he says, On this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. When it talks about the gates of Hades, that's a protective measure. And it's saying as the church advances in the power of Jesus, those gates can't hold it back. That's the power of Jesus Christ against the enemy. Now look at that and ask a couple questions. One, have I believed in that powerful Savior? And two, do I believe that that's the power that resides in me? The power that can overcome Satan and Hades. Do I believe that? Do you believe that? Or have we forgotten the power of Jesus Christ? Do I believe victory is mine through him? The core issue here is this, and this is where Jesus gets really poignant. If you haven't listened yet, listen to this. Jesus is going to say, pick your side in this battle. Verse 23, whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. This is the crux of the whole passage. Are you with Jesus? Are you gathering the sheep? Or are you against him, scattering them? There is no neutral ground. How many of you saw the Pew poll a couple weeks ago talking about the number of Americans in church and, and out of church? Any of you read that? Eric, Noah, a couple of you. Basically, they're looking at the information 
to say that the number of people in churches in certain denominations is, is lessening. And many people look at it and say, raise the white flag. Christianity is dying. Christianity is dying. Ed Stetzer, the president of Lifeway Research, looked at it and says, is Christianity really dying or is it being clarified? And I want to show you a cartoon by Adam Ford that I think sums this up. And as we look at the cartoon, I want you to think of, are you for me or against me? Adam Ford does this first slide. This is America 20 years ago, and you can't read the shirts. The guy with the blonde hair on the left says non-Christian. The guy in the middle says meh. You know what meh is? Kind of like, eh. Take it or leave it. And the guy on the right, his shirt says Christian. Okay. So over here, you got the... The guy on the right, the Christian, saying, I am definitely a Christian. And you got the non-Christian saying, I'm definitely not a Christian. And below that, you've got the mad guy. Eh? He says, I honestly don't care that much about following Jesus, but it's socially advantageous for me to self-identify as a Christian, so that's what I do. That's 20 years ago. Now fast forward to today. You got the guy on the right saying, the Christian, I am definitely a Christian. You got the non-Christian still saying, I'm definitely not a Christian. But now what's changed? You've got the mad guy saying, okay, so times have changed and it's no longer socially advantageous for me to self-identify as a Christian. So I stopped. I'm on this side now. I'll go to the next slide. You got the non-Christian saying to the Christian, dang, Christian, Pew Research says you're dying over there. There used to be two of you and now there's only one. You should be worried. Next slide. What the truth is, the Christian says, nah, there was really only one of me before, and there's still one of me. The mad guy just got more honest. And oddly enough, I feel healthier than I have in a long time. What strikes me about that is how easy it is to be against Jesus. You don't have to be a raging, vehement atheist on Facebook and on in, in your sphere of friends speaking blasphemy against Jesus Christ. You don't have to do anything except be, meh. That's what Jesus is saying here. It is very easy to be against me. You've got to choose to be for me. Listen to what C.S. Lewis said in his book, The Screwtape Letters. How many of you have read that? Screwtape is writing to his nephew Wormwood, they're demons, and Wormwood is working on a human to ruin his eternity. Screwtape says to Wormwood, a moderated religion is as good for us as no religion at all, and more amusing. What he's saying is, get, get them just enough. Get them in church. Make, make them feel like they're good for going to church on Sundays. Just get them just a taste, because then they think they're good. That's just as good for the demons as no religion at all. He also says to his nephew, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts, your affectionate uncle, Screwtape. It doesn't take a lot to be against Jesus. It forces us to ask the question, am I for him or am I against him? Biggest question you'll ever answer. He goes on to show us the danger of supposed neutrality in verse 24. When an impure spirit comes out of a person, it goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. 
When it arrives, it finds the house swept clean and put in order. Then it goes and takes seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And the final condition of that person is worse than the first. You get the picture? Someone's got one demon in them. The demon leaves. The person's still left empty. So the demon grabs seven more, more filthy and vile than itself, and comes back, and now the person is worse off than he started. What do we do with this? One of the applications of this is true security in this life and the life to come is only found in the life of Jesus Christ. We have to go beyond getting rid of the old. We have to go on to believe in Jesus in faith and invite him through the Holy Spirit to live in us. If not, we're still very susceptible to the enemy. It's not enough for the alcoholic to set down the bottle. He must receive Jesus Christ. It's not enough for the hungry to be fed. He must receive Jesus. It's not enough for the porn star to start doing PG movies. He or she must receive Jesus. It's not enough for the kid that grew up in the church bubble to keep going to church. He must receive Jesus. And you look at your own life, I look at mine, what he's getting at, it's not enough just to get rid of the bad stuff the best we can because that leaves us at best empty and inviting the enemy to come in. We must put our faith in Jesus Christ and have the Holy Spirit replace those things. If we don't, sometimes what we end up doing is trading one addiction for another. You know that can happen? How many of you heard of the documentary Grizzly Man about Timothy Treadwell? Timothy Treadwell, for 13 summers, spent time on an Alaskan preserve with the grizzly bears, doing things that none of us would dare do, touching them, talking to them, full-size, thousand-pound grizzly bears, two feet away. He wanted to live among the bears. Deb Liggett, the superintendent at the park, said this. She said, at best, he's misguided. At worst, he's dangerous. But as you read why he did what he did and you start to hear his story, you find out a couple things. One was that when he was younger, he was addicted to alcohol. And he broke that addiction. And what you start to see in the movie is that he replaced that addiction to alcohol for a love for these grizzly bears. That replaced that. And that explains the, the crazy things he did. And there are clips in the documentary where he rants against God openly against God. He just has this anger towards God. And yet he loves these grizzly bears. And sadly, what ended up happening is that in 2003, he and his girlfriend were attacked and killed by one of the grizzly bears that he loved so much. And I look at that and I'm like, that is so sad because he traded his addiction to alcohol for an addiction to these grizzly bears and it still cost him his life. What he needed was to replace that void with God. That's why as believers who carry the gospel, we must aim to take people all the way to Jesus. When we talk about, do I feed the poor or tell them about Jesus? Yes. It's not an either or. It's a both and. Otherwise, they're still subject to defeat in this life and the life to come. 
Christians even, while we can't be possessed by demons, we can open the door to their oppression in our homes, in our lives. How, does, how is it that Satan and his demons like to get at us? Erwin Lutzer, pastor of Moody Memorial Church, where we attended for several years in Chicago, listed seven things that basically are like opening the door for Satan and his demons to come oppress you. One is rebellion and self-will against God. You read and know what God says, and you say no. Why does that open the door? Because that's the essence of Satan's sin himself. He said, I want to be God. That's how he got thrown out of heaven. Do I have any rebellion or self-will in my life? Human anger against another. I had a couple in church about five or six years ago when I was at the Heights that called me and said, we're seeing some weird stuff in our house. We think it's spiritual warfare. Could we pray? And I said, yeah, we can pray. And we prayed. And I said, do you guys know of anything that might be opening the door? And they told me the past three or four weeks, we've been yelling at each other. We, we have just had unbridled anger in our home towards each other, just constantly. I said, you guys, that's like opening the door saying, come on in. You've got to repent of that anger. Lay it down. Hatred for others. Condemnation and hopelessness, that's one of his favorite tools. If he can keep you feeling condemned and hopeless, false religions, unwarranted fear, and sexual immorality. These are all doors saying, come on in. We want to close those doors and we want to ask the question, have I gone beyond removing the harmful behaviors from my life to trusting in Jesus so that I am safe? And am I helping to take others all the way? that place. Finally, some good news. Everybody ready for some good news? I'll talk about the blessedness of those who choose Jesus. Verse 27, as Jesus was saying these things, a woman in the crowd called out, blessed is the mother who gave you birth and nursed you. You think about that. What a privilege for Mary, right? How does he answer? He said, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. The word blessed means happy. Happy are those who hear his words, believe in him, and obey it. In Luke 8, the parable of the seed, he had said the seed on good soil stands for those with a noble and good heart who hear the word, retain it, and by persevering, produce a crop. Hear, retain, persevere. Those are the ones who are happy, who choose Jesus. How do we do this practically? Four quick things from Erwin Lutzer. One, we have to believe that Christ has made death to our self-rule possible. Now, the essence of Satan's plan isn't necessarily for you to worship him. It's really for you to worship yourself, because that's what he does. Erwin Lutzer says, you have to believe that you can kill that as a believer in Jesus Christ. Romans 6 says... Our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. If you're a believer, do you believe that in Jesus you can overcome sin? You have to believe that if you're going to overcome. Number two, we have to come to the end of our rationalizations and excuses. As long as we're comfortable with Satan having his way in our house, nothing's going to change. 
You've got to desire freedom, revolution. Number three, we have to receive the filling, the control of the Spirit, because we can't do it on our own. The message of this isn't go out of here and try to fix those things in your lives. It's say, Jesus, I need your help. Fill me with your Spirit. Control me with your Spirit so I can turn this around. And finally, he says it's all through faith. Faith in Jesus Christ. That's what it comes down to. That's the way to overcome. Colossians 2.15, as we wrap up, says this. At the cross, he disarmed the powers and authorities. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. That was a death blow. So we look around and we say, how is that so? Because I still see the battle going on. As Trip Lee put it, people are still dying. Sin is still potent. The devil is still tempting and evil ain't slowing. I, I still see all this pain and this brokenness. Phil Vischer, VeggieTales guy, explains this to kids like this. He says this, God made the world like this wonderful amusement park with all the coolest rides and all the coolest attractions. Then imagine that this amusement park is controlled by computers, as most of them are today, and this virus called sin got in the computers, and all of a sudden, the Dumbo ride starts dumping kids on the ground. And you're at the shows at the amusement park, and the lights start going out. It's, it's because of sin and, and its impact in the world. The promise of the cross is that in the middle of the battle, as it goes on, we can have victory in the middle of the battle. As Phil Vischer put it, when the kid gets dumped out of the ride at the park, we're the first ones on scene to help them and point them in the right direction because we've got the answer they need. There's an even greater hope that in the future, God's going to come back and fix the amusement park once and for all. Revelation 20, verse 10, the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. As Trip Lee puts it, I love this verse of the song, just wait until that trumpet gets blowing. The general is coming with keys in his hands. Then death and Hades, they'll freeze where they stand to see they've been defeated. Please understand, if they don't want to see him, the king is the man. He's the man of war, a beast on the battlefield, obliterating all the evil forces that are killed. Where's your sting, death? Oh, you don't got it, bro. Where's your victory? Oh, you've been swallowed whole. And when he's back, ain't no fighting Jehovah. He'll toss you in a lake of burning fire and sulfur. He's a titan, a soldier. He'll wipe away our tears and our fears and all our pain, and death will be over. Amen.